Hello and welcome to The Last Push Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to take a look um, at the first section of your biology paper two. So we're going to take a break from chemistry, take a break from physics, and we're going to come back and do some biology. So the first part of your biology paper two is called homeostasis and response. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. So first thing you need to make sure you've got some paper, some pens, so that you can get intentional and get started with that. So grab all your materials and then get back here for our episode. Okay, hopefully that gave you enough time to just quickly grab your materials and you've got things to write important notes down with or you've got flashcards to kind of just jot down some of the important information that we are going to look through today. Now, there might be a few pictures. I might ask you to pause the podcast and get up because they help with some of the explanations for this section. So homeostasis and response. We are going to be talking about the human body specifically for this entire section. And what we need to start thinking about is start thinking about what happens when our environment changes. So If you're sat down right now, if you actually think about, or you could actually do this, if you get up and start running on the spot, how is your body going to respond to that exercise that you were doing? What will happen after a minute? What will happen after three minutes? Because you've changed your environment, you've gone from sitting down and now you are working your muscles, you're working your heart, your lungs are working a little bit harder. So how does your environment change? So the whole time we start thinking about homeostasis and response, we need to try to link it to biological examples that are happening inside of our bodies. Because it's really, really important for us to know and to realize that cells in our bodies can only survive within really narrow specific parameters. So there's going to be physical parameters, there might be chemical parameters. And what I mean by a parameter, I mean a narrow range at which they work well at. So for example, um, our body's temperature is a really set specific temperature of around 36, 36.5 degrees Celsius that we want to make sure it stays at. And that's because all of our cells and the enzymes inside of our body work best at that temperature. So our response is that our body will respond in a way if our environment changes. So if we walk into a giant freezer, a walk-in freezer, it's freezing cold in there. All of a sudden, the temperature plummets. It's absolutely freezing. So we won't 
die right away. In fact, our body, before we reach hypothermia, our body will start doing specific things. We'll start shivering. The hairs on our arms and our legs will stand up to try to trap any heat in. Our blood vessels will constrict to move further away from the surface of our skin to try to keep heat in. Um, So there's lots of things that our bodies do when the environment changes. It's a physical environment. I also mentioned chemical limits and chemical environments. So think of the stomach. Okay, the stomach is a major organ in your digestive system, which if you listened to the organization podcast, you would have learned all about it. And inside the stomach, we have got hydrochloric acid. So the enzymes, the chemical enzymes, those chemicals that help digest the food in our stomach, they work best with a acidic pH of around three because that's where the hydrochloric acid is. So that's a chemical limit that is specific for our stomachs. So there's lots of different ways in which our body will respond to physical and chemical changes. And that's what this whole section is about, homeostasis and response. So We need to remember how our body will actually, what are the certain things that our body needs to control. And our body needs to be able to control three things really, really well. And the first thing that it needs to be able to control is blood glucose concentrations. So the sugar concentrations that is moving around in your blood right now can't get too high and it can't get too low. So we'll talk about how your body responds to an increase in blood glucose levels and a decrease in blood glucose levels. The second thing that's really important that our body maintains and controls is the temperature, our body's temperature. We need to make sure that we're always controlling that to making sure it's as constant as possible. And the third thing that's really important to make sure that we maintain are our water levels. And you can go into a lot of depth about this. You can learn about the kidneys and how the kidneys help with the function of the water levels and look at um, things like osmoregulation, the regulation of water within the kidneys. So those three things are really specific in maintaining homeostasis. Now, the first thing that you need to get down, the first thing that you really need to remember is what is homeostasis? What is it? Because it is a key word. The word homeostasis is a key scientific word. So homeostasis It is the regulation of the internal conditions of a cell or organism to maintain optimum conditions for function in response to 
internal and external changes. Now that definition is quite complicated. Um, there's a lot of complicated words involved in that definition itself. So I want to give you a simplified version, one that you can still get awarded marks for and you can still understand and then be able to use it to explain examples. So homeostasis, it's how we regulate internal conditions inside of our bodies. So homeostasis is the response to changes in the environment. So how we always look at it is that homeostasis means to maintain a constant internal environment. So those three words are really, really important to try to remember because it summarizes what homeostasis means quite nicely. So it's maintaining a constant internal environment. And then we can link that to the different examples that we've talked about um, that we've just introduced. So blood glucose concentrations, maintaining the constant levels of blood glucose levels, maintaining the constant body temperature, maintaining water levels. So those are the things that we're going to get into in a bit more detail. But right now, what I want you to start thinking about is I want you to do this little activity with me where you actually look around the room. You look around your surroundings. You look around your environment, your external environment. And as you're looking around at different objects, your eyes are actually processing that information and you're able to know exactly what you're looking at. So what we need to focus on is thinking about how there is an automatic control system inside of our body. And that automatic control system that just happens on autopilot without us even thinking about it it involves the nervous system and or chemical responses. So hormones inside of our bodies that are being released to do certain jobs. And the one that I want us to focus on at the start is going to be the nervous system. Because that is a big section of learning and understanding that we need to try to embed in our long term memory. So the nervous system. Now, when I say nervous system, I want you to th think about the first word that comes to mind. So nervous system. What, what words start coming into your mind? What can you link that with? What's familiar to you when I say the word nervous system? And hopefully, one of the first things you've thought of is brain. You might have thought about nerve cells. You might have thought about the spinal cord, which is exactly what, with homeostasis 
and the nervous system what we're going to be looking into now. So our control system is made up of certain things. And one of the first things that your control system is made up of are cells that are called receptor cells. And all of these receptor cells, I think it's easy to think about it because most of them, if you think of your senses, which is something you've known for a very long time. So receptor cells and link that to senses. So for example, my eyes are able to see the environment around me. So the cells within my eyes would be receptor cells that are able to see any dangers or any changes in my environment. My ears, my ears are able to hear any changes in my environment. So there's receptor cells in my ears. My nose, my nose is able to smell any poisons or chemicals or really nice smells like flowers or cooking. And those receptor cells in my nose can detect the smells that are coming in. Then we also have got our tongue and our mouth. Our mouth and our tongue have got receptor cells on them that are able to realize if something comes into our mouth like a poison or something that's moldy or something that's gone off so that we can use our nervous system with our receptor cells to detect if there are hazards and things like that. And last but not least, a lot of the times our skin is a brilliant form of receptor cells because there's cells on our fingers, on our toes, all over our skin that picks up changes to our environment. So if I stub my toe on a door, okay, I wouldn't normally jam my foot into a door or end of a table. So that would be a change in the environment. Or if my if I put my hand down on the stove top, which just was turned off and I didn't realize it was off and is still hot, then that would be something that my fingers would, would pick up in those receptor cells. So cells called receptors, they detect a stimulus. And a stimulus is a change in the environment. So the stimulus could be a bee flying at your face, which you see in your eye cells in, that are your receptor cells. Loud noises on the street, a siren, an ambulance that goes off right behind you that you didn't see, you hear it first. That's a change in the environment that can be a stimulus. So cells are called receptors and they are going to pick up the changes in the environment. They're gonna detect the stimuli. Then we've also got a coordination center, which is part of our control system. And the coordination center is our brain, our spinal cords. It could also be things like our pancreas, 
because our pancreas is involved in blood glucose concentrations. So coordination centers are anything that receive and process information. So they're getting the information from our receptor cells and they're able to process it and send a response back. And the last thing that happens when we're thinking about a reflex, reflex action, if we're thinking about how we handle a changing situation, the last thing that always happens is our muscles or our glands will respond. And muscles and glands are called effectors because they have an effect. They are the thing that is doing the response. They are affecting and your muscles will relax or contract to respond to whatever the change in the environment is. And glands are going to release hormones, which will help respond and restore the body back to your optimum levels, maintaining a constant internal environment, maintaining homeostasis. So that's kind of a little overview of the coordination center of the effectors of the control system within our bodies. Now, in order for you to go into more detail about the nervous system, you need to know how a reflex action happens and how we react to our surroundings and coordinate to actually do a behavior to respond to that change. So the first thing that happens, and a lot of this will be a repeat because I'm just trying to give you the information and go through it again. When the information comes in from the receptors, it's gonna pass along neurons or nerve cells as part of your nervous system because that's how that electrical signal, that electrical impulse of information travels through your body. It travels from nerve cell to nerve cell so that it can eventually get up to your brain where your brain processes the information and then it sends an electrical impulse back down to muscle cells to respond. So there are three types of neurons, of nerve cells that you need to know about. And the first one is the sensory neuron. The second one is the relay neuron. And the third one is the motor neuron. So what I suggest you do is I suggest you pause the video and you get onto BBC Bite Size and you actually get a diagram up so that you can see a diagram of this reflex arc which is labeled. So that's what you should be doing right now. Pausing it, pausing the podcast and going on BBC Bite Size to get yourself a diagram. So as we go through this, you've got a visual representation in front of you. 
So I'll give you a quick minute to pause that and go get that diagram. Okay, welcome back. Now that you've got your diagram, you hopefully can see everything labeled really clearly in front of you. So the first thing that happens in a reflex arc is a stimulus happens. Your environment changes. Something externally happens. So the receptor cells will detect the stimulus. The receptor cells in your skin, the receptor cells in your eyes, the receptor cells in your ears, your nose, your mouth, any one of those receptor cells will detect the change in the environment called a stimulus. And then what will happen is from the receptor cells, the electrical impulse will be passed from the sensory neuron to the relay neuron to the central nervous system, the spinal cord, the brain for processing. Then after the information has been processed, it will pass the electrical impulse down the motor neuron. And from the motor neuron, the last steps happen where it will go to the effector. So the electrical impulse will go to the muscles and the muscles are able to contract or relax so that a response happens. So this is a really, really important process for you to be able to actually outline. And a lot of the times you'll be asked to analyze different situations and explain how the reflex arc is specific for that situation. So they might be talking about holding your hand over a hot candle. Another one I've seen before is that a bee actually is flying towards your eye. So the response for that would be you're going to blink, you're going to move away. So you have to be able to, first of all, analyze the situation that you're given and pick out what the stimulus is, what's the change in the environment. Then if it's something to do with taste, if it's poison, the receptor cells are on your tongue. You have to be able to make that link. So think about your senses so that you can make that link. Now, reflex actions are really, really fast. Um, they don't involve the conscious part of your brain. They happen extremely quickly. Very, very, very fast even though when you write out an answer, it seems like it is going slowly because there's all these different parts. But nerve cells are specialized in a way that they're elongated and they're able to pass the electrical impulse very, very quickly. Now, there's one more 
keywords that we've not talked about. And a lot of diagrams will show that it's a sensory neuron, and then a relay neuron, and then a motor neuron. But I need you to look at your arm right now. I need you to think about if you touch a pin with one of your fingers, you prick your finger, is there only going to be one sensory neuron, one giant, long, microscopic sensory neuron that goes all the way from your fingertip all the way up to your neck and your spinal cord and your brain? I don't think so. That logically does not make sense. Think about it. You know cells are microscopic. Right now you're looking at your skin, but you don't actually see an individual skin cell. It's the same with nerve cells. There are multiple sensory neurons. So usually you have to think about it. And usually I draw this out. There'd be a million sensory neurons before you get to your spinal cord, before you get to your brain. There'd be a million relay neurons, a million motor neurons. So it almost goes like this. It almost goes like this. Change in the environment, which is a stimulus. Receptor cell. Sensory, 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 times a thousand or more. All the way up to your brain, to your spinal cords, and then it would come back. Relay, 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 relay. Motor, 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 motor. Muscle response. So I need you to think about it. It's not just one sensory nerve cell. One sensory neuron. It's a lot. So the keyword we've not talked about is called a synapse. A synapse is a gap between nerve cells. It is a gap between nerve cells. So it could be a sensory neuron, then a gap, a synapse, then another sensory neuron. Or it could be a sensory neuron, then a gap, a synapse, and then a relay neuron. So a synapse is a gap between any nerve cell. And while I've been talking about this, I've been talking about how it's an electrical impulse. Once the electrical impulse gets to the end of a nerve cell, it actually changes into a chemical. And the chemical will move across the gap. The chemical will move and diffuse across the synapse to the next neuron. When it first changes into a chemical, when the electrical impulse first changes into a chemical, there's a lot of chemicals, neurotransmitters, on 
the previous neuron. So it's able to move from an area of high concentration at the start of the synapse to an area of low concentration at the end of the synapse and at the start of the next neuron. Now, if you're on BBC Bite Size, there is a diagram about this, and there's also an animation which shows this quite well. So you should be able to see that chemical, and usually they're drawn as little tiny circles, which will actually move and diffuse across the synapse. So that is the reflex action. And when you are explaining a reflex action, you also need to describe what a synapse is. So before we move away from neurons and before we start turning up, talking about and turning our attention to hormones, the last thing I want to tell you is that there is a required practical called the ruler drop or the human reaction time required practical. So what I suggest you do is you go on to the Malsbury Science YouTube channel and you're actually able to take a look at this practical so that you know the method for this. But it is one you've most likely done in class where one partner holds a ruler and the other partner catches the ruler and depending on how fast you catch the ruler, the faster you catch it, the faster your reaction time. Okay, so you can either pause the video and do that now, or we're going to get started on the human endocrine system and hormones. All right, so the second part of homeostasis and response, it's all about hormones and hormonal coordination within humans. So we're still talking about humans, we're talking about hormones and the endocrine system. Now, a lot of students, when I first start talking about the endocrine system, they give me a little look because the endocrine system doesn't get a lot of time. Um, it, early in your education, a lot of the times your time is spent on the flashier systems like the circulatory system and you do a heart dissection or the respiratory system and you take a look at the lungs and how smoke damages it. And a lot of times the endocrine system doesn't really get the credit that it deserves because the endocrine system controls all the hormones in your body. And specifically, it's made up of glands. And glands are going to make chemicals called hormones. These hormones are able to move directly in the bloodstream to where they're needed in your body. So the endocrine system has got glands. And when you looked at digestion, you would have looked at the salivary glands in your mouth, which make the chemical enzyme amylase. 
So that's an example of a glands. Now, these hormones travel around your bloodstream and they will go to specific target cells to carry out functions. And the difference between the endocrine system and the nervous system, hormones are slower. They take longer to react, the effects are slower, but they can actually act for longer. Now, the first thing that you need to know is some of the really important glands. That's what we're going to go through first. And the number one, the head honcho of all the glands, the most important gland that there is, is the master gland. And it's known as the master gland because it makes several different hormones. This gland is called the pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland is in your brain. So the pituitary gland is the master gland. It's found in your brain and it's called the master gland because it makes several hormones which glow into your bloodstream. And these hormones can actually act on other glands and stimulate other hormones being produced as well. So that's why pituitary gland is so important. The next one down is in your throat and it's called the thyroid gland. This one I find people are less familiar with. So you might want to get a picture up of glands in your body just so you can see where it is, but it is in your throat. Then the third gland is your pancreas. And we've already talked about the pancreas with your digestive system. So your pancreas is quite an important gland because it makes digestive enzymes. It also is involved with controlling blood glucose levels, which we'll get to in more detail. The next one, the fourth one, is called the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands, there are two of them, and they sit on top of your kidneys. And the adrenal glands are responsible for making a well-known hormone called adrenaline. The last two glands are the reproductive glands. So for females, we've got the ovaries, and there are two of them. And for males, we've got the testes, and there are also two of them, and they produce testosterone. So those are the overview of some really important glands in your body, and you need to be able to know where they're located in your body. So you should get a diagram up so you can visually think about where they are in your body. Now, in detail, I think it's really, really important to know about blood glucose levels and the glucose concentration in your blood because this is something that happens daily and there are two types of diabetes which is a disorder which links to blood glucose levels so it's important to learn about controlling blood glucose levels early on in your education
because it is something that is informative and can actually contribute to your everyday life. So blood glucose concentration, the amount of sugar in your blood, it's monitored and it's controlled by the pancreas. So the pancreas will be controlling the hormones being released. And you need to know what happens when your blood glucose levels get too high. And it's also a good idea to know what happens when your blood glucose levels get too low. So first thing, if you have a giant piece of cake or you make a cake and you actually decide just to eat the whole thing because you think that's a good idea, your blood glucose levels are going to skyrocket. They are going to be huge. So what your pancreas does is your pancreas will detect that there is an increase way too high of your blood glucose levels. What your pancreas does is it makes insulin. Insulin is the hormone that will help control this. Once insulin is made by your pancreas, the insulin, what it does is it causes glucose to actually move from your blood into cells. And those cells can use the glucose in respiration. Or, this is more what it's well known for, is it will change the glucose into glycogen to be stored. And that glycogen is stored in the liver and muscle cells. So just a little recap. When blood glucose concentrations get too high, your pancreas will make the hormone insulin. And insulin will cause glucose to be taken in by the cells. And in your liver and muscle cells, it will get converted into glycogen where it can be stored. So what happens if they get too low? Well, what happens if they get too low? It's still your pancreas involved. Your pancreas will realize, whoa, this person has not eaten a meal in six hours. What are they doing? And your pancreas will realize that your blood glucose levels are too low. So what your pancreas does is it releases a hormone called glucagon. And one of my catchphrases that I say in lessons a lot of times is when glucose is all gone, glucagon. When glucose is all gone, glucagon. So when blood glucose concentrations get too low, the pancreas makes and releases glucagon, which causes the glycogen, which is stored, to get changed back into glucose and get released back into the bloodstream, bringing a back homeostasis, trying to maintain the constant internal environment raising up your blood glucose levels in your blood to try to make it at a 
more normal level. Now, the last thing that is linked with knowing about blood glucose concentration and in terms of health is you want to know that there are two types of diabetes and type 1 diabetes it's a disorder where your pancreas can't actually make enough insulin and if it can't make enough insulin it means that people with type 1 diabetes have an uncontrolled high blood glucose levels so in order to treat this, you just need to make sure that you are taking regular insulin injections when you need them, when your blood glucose levels get too high. So you've got a monitor, which will monitor your bloods, and it will tell you when your blood glucose levels are too high. Now, modern technology has actually changed a lot of these glucose pumps, and a lot of them can be worn and they monitor it directly and inject the amount of insulin your body needs, which is really, really helpful. You no longer need to do mass and measure out the amount of insulin in a needle and inject yourself with it. It's become a lot easier and simpler to manage because of advancements in technology over the last 10, 20 years. The second type of diabetes is type 2 diabetes, and this is where your body cells no longer respond properly to the insulin which is made in the pancreas. So it's not that the pancreas isn't releasing enough insulin, it's that the cells can't actually respond how they should. So what happens a lot of the times um, is type 2 diabetes comes and is diagnosed um, because of some of the risk factors involved. And one of the biggest risk factors for type 2 diabetes is obesity. So it's really important as you age to make sure that you are maintaining a healthy body mass so that you do not become at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. The control for type 2 diabetes um, and how you manage it is you need to make sure that you've got a carbohydrate controlled diet. So you're watching the amount of carbohydrates you put into your body. So you need to be really careful with any high sugar contents. You need to be really careful with breads, pastas, pastries, even fruits and vegetables have got some surprisingly high carbohydrates in them. So it's something that you need to monitor with your healthcare professionals. And there's also an exercise regime as well as one of the common treatments because you can um, counteract and reduce type 2 diabetes if you are able to lose some of the body mass and get a healthier lifestyle back in on track. So that's blood glucose levels, and I think it's really, really important for you as adolescents, as young adults, to be aware of the actual consequences with not monitoring blood glucose levels 
as you should while you're growing up and in your early adulthood and mid-adulthood because it is something that can affect anyone and everyone at any point in time during their life. So that's blood glucose levels. Now, the next thing that we need to focus on is hormones in human reproduction. So when we're talking about human reproduction, we will be talking about the female. Um, And we're also going to look at different forms of contraception and the uses of hormones to treat fertility. So the first thing that we need to go over and the first thing that is important for every single one of you to know is what are the roles involved in human reproduction and in terms of with a female if human reproduction if we're talking about a female we're talking about an egg that is being able to be released from the ovary of that female Uh, approximately every 28 days and if that egg is fertilized if that egg fuses with a sperm cell then we've got a developing baby we've got an embryo that will be developing inside of the woman If there is no fusion of sperm, if there's no fertilization, then the egg and the lining of the uterus will be shed. And this is called the menstrual cycle. So when we are talking about the menstrual cycle of a woman, there are different hormones involved that you need to be aware of. And there are four specific hormones that we're going to talk about. The first hormone is called follicle-stimulating hormone. I want you to think of the word stimulating. So follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. FSH hormone is released from the pituitary gland and it will travel down to the ovaries and it will start the egg being matured in the ovary. So FSH is going to be causing the maturation of the egg it's maturing the egg and if you write that down if you remember that if you know that that fsh matures the egg then that is absolutely brilliant the next thing is what needs to happen and how our bodies respond to fsh is the female body will start then the ovaries will start releasing estrogen And estrogen is a hormone which will start building the lining of the uterus. And the reason why females develop in this way, we have to build a lining of the uterus because if fertilization was to occur and if a baby was to start growing, it needs a lining of a uterus or the pregnancy won't happen. 
So that's one of the ways in terms of evolution, in terms of making sure that the human race and our species continues on. That's one way that the female body is adapted. So FSH happens first. It matures the egg. Then estrogen happens and estrogen builds the lining of the uterus. Then the third hormone is luteinizing hormone or LH. What LH does is it releases the mature egg and that mature egg will then be released from the ovary and it will travel down the oviduct, down the fallopian tube and it will travel into the uterus where it basically is awaiting fertilization. So just a little recap. First thing we've got FSH, which matures the egg. Then we've got estrogen, which builds the lining of the uterus. Then we've got LH, which releases the egg. And with the production of LH, that also starts the production of progesterone. And progesterone is a hormone that will help maintain the lining of the uterus so that the lining of the uterus doesn't wear away. Now, there are two kind of paths that this egg takes. If the egg is fertilized by a sperm cell and they fuse together, then that cell will implant itself into the lining of the uterus. If there is no fertilization and no fusing of the sperm cell, then the egg and the lining of the uterus is shed, and that is the menstrual cycle. Now, there are lots of diagrams and lots of explanations about this that go into a lot more detail if you are interested. I suggest that you start with BBC Bite Size as a starting point if you want to know a little bit more about it. And so the last thing that we're going to talk about is contraception and fertility and infertility. So with contraception, there are lots of hormonal and there are also lots of non-hormonal methods of contraception if you are trying not to have a baby, if you do not want to have a baby. And some of these include the pill. So the oral contraception is a pill that females can take and the main thing that the pill does is it inhibits and it stops FSH production. So no eggs actually get matured. So an, a, an immature egg will be released, but not a mature egg. So with the pill, that's the main thing that it is doing. It is stopping or inhibiting FSH production. The second thing that is an option for contraception is an injection or an implant or a skin patch. And these three forms, the injection, implant, or skin patch, are all different variations that will release 
that will slowly release progesterone to inhibit and stop maturing and releasing the eggs. So if you have too much progesterone in your body, it will actually stop eggs from being matured and it will stop eggs from being released. So the oral pill stops FSH to stop eggs from being mature and the injection the implant or the skin patch will have a slow release of progesterone to stop the eggs from being matured and to stop them from being released. Now we've also got barrier methods and the barrier methods would be considered any condoms or diaphragms. And what they do is they stop the sperm from even reaching the egg. There's also IUD devices or intrauterine devices is their, their full name. And what those do is they actually prevent, they stop the implantation of an embryo. So if fertilization has happened, if the egg cell and the sperm cell have fused together, what this implant does is it actually stops that embryo from fusing with the lining of the uterus. There are also things like spermicides and those will kill sperm. Obviously, there is abstaining from intercourse altogether. Um, so abstinence is one of the other non-hormonal methods that is available. So all these different forms of contraception, the oral pill, the injection, the implant, the skin patch, the intrauterine device, the barrier methods, spermicides, and abstinence, all those are different forms of contraception to avoid having a baby. Now on the other side of it, some people actually want to have a baby, but they can't or they're finding it difficult and they would be considered having fertility problems. So there are treatments to treat infertility. And one of the main things that is currently around and being used is IVF or in vitro fertilization. So what happens is that someone who is undergoing IVF, there are a number of steps that have to happen. And the first step is the mother has to be given FSH and LH to actually stimulate maturing and releasing of the eggs. Because a lot of the times with infertility, it's because there's a lack of one or more of these hormones. So they'll be given injections, they'll be given these hormones into their bodies so that eggs can be matured and eggs can be released. And specifically, you want to get a lot of eggs, more than just one. Because the second step is collection. 
So the eggs are going to be collected. So it's a little surgery where um, the surgeon will go in. Um, it's considered less invasive because there's no scalpels involved. But the surgeon, the doctor would be going in. They would be collecting the egg. And from those eggs collected, they're actually fused in a lab with the sperm from the father. So fertilization happens in the lab. And then you wait in the lab and the fertilized egg develops into an embryo, uh, a ball of around 20 cells, maybe a little bit more, but it's around 20 cells. Once you have the embryo, that tiny ball of cells, what will happen is one or two of those embryos will be inserted back into the mother's uterus, hoping that one or two of those embryos, and sometimes two, twins are common with IVF, um, those embryos will actually embed themselves in the lining of the uterus, and then that woman is able to go through her nine-month pregnancy as normal. So that's IVF, and that's one of the ways that we treat infertility. Now, with the fertility, um, a lot of times it's considered very emotional. It's very physically stressful. And the success rates are actually not as high as you'd like them to be. And one of the last facts is that it can lead to multiple births, like twins or twi triplets, which puts the mother and the babies at a higher risk for the delivery. So in terms of um, doing IVF and completing IVF, it is something that is available, but there are what some people would consider some negative attributes to it. And the very last thing that we're going to touch on before we wrap up homeostasis and response is what's a feedback system? So a feedback system, when we're talking about homeostasis, is basically your body trying to bring the system back to normal. So there are two examples of this. Um, one example is adrenaline. So adrenaline is made by the adrenal glands when you're stressed, when you're scared, when you're in a fearful situation. And what the adrenaline does is it actually, it increases your heart rate and it boosts the delivery of oxygen to help prepare the muscles, the brain for the fight or flight response. So that is a feedback system in terms of adrenaline. The, another major feedback system that we talked about was your blood glucose levels. So if they get too high, what does your body do to bring them down? If your blood glucose levels get too low, what does your body do to bring them back up? And the last and final um, example of a feedback loop is with the thyroid gland in your neck. And your thyroid gland makes a hormone called thyroxin. And thyroxin is 
responsible for stimulating metabolic rates. Um, so it's involved with, with growth and development. So it's constantly trying to be on a feedback loop to help with growth and development and releasing more thyroxine when you need it, releasing less thyroxine when you don't need as much. So that's the major thing with some of these feedback systems is they'll release a lot when you need it, but they'll also reduce the amount that is being released when you don't need it. Um, so yeah, so that's a feedback system. So that's everything with homeostasis response in terms of what we wanted to cover today. It's quite a lot. What I really, really highly suggest is that you go onto BBC Bite Size, you make some more summary notes, you do some flashcards. One thing that we did not go into detail is how your body controls temperature change and how your body controls water levels. But if you want to look at more detail on those, that's another option that you can do um, as well. So hope you guys liked it. Um, hope you found it helpful. And if anyone has anything that they specifically want a podcast on, just leave a comment and I can try to do that one for you as well. So have a great day. Get out there, do some studying.